Our text for today is Esther chapter 10. And when you're there, and if you're able, would you please stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word. Esther chapter 10, beginning there in verse number 1. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people, and he spoke peace to all his people. Thank you. You may be seated. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Dear Father, Lord, as we... As we look at this last chapter of Esther, God, and as we seek to worship you in the preaching and in the listening of your word, God, I ask that you would draw our hearts to you. Lord, and I ask that as we look at your word, your people would be edified, that your church would be built up. God, I pray that our minds would leave the cares of this world outside as we come in here together to worship you and to look upwards to you. And as we desire to praise your son, Lord, and remember your gospel. Father, we ask all of this in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now today we've come to the final chapter in our study of the book of Esther. Now generally we've had really large portions of scripture to read. But today, only three verses. But as we look at these three verses, and as we look at the book of Esther as a whole, I think we can all say with confidence that God saves, that God delivers his people. And that's really the message of all of Scripture. Throughout all of the Bible, the gospel is being preached. Over and over and over again, we're reminded that God saves. Like one point being repeated, God saves, and this is the way that he saves. Now, in this book, how exactly did God deliver his people? What did that story look like? Well, a great thing about Esther is that it's a very short book. It's not one of those books that you have to read three chapters of a day and finish over the course of a few months. It's one of those books that, if you like, you can sit down and you can read it all in one sitting. And looking back at our story, we can see an amazing example of God's providence, an amazing example of God's reversal, the reversal of the enemies of God's people and the people of God themselves. And just as a way of review, just to remind ourselves of the story, let's take a brief walk through what we've seen so far in this book. If you remember, at the beginning of this book, we saw the worldly greatness of Ahasuerus. We saw him reject his wife, Vashti, and then marry a new wife, the orphan Jew, Esther. We saw that Esther had a cousin named Mordecai, and Mordecai discovered a plot against the king. And by telling Esther, he saved the king's life. And all of this was done according to God's providence. But there was also an enemy. There was a man named Haman, There was a man who was an enemy of the Jewish people. 
from the line of the Canaanites, you see this microcosm of the great picture. Imagine the great picture of the Canaanites versus Israel, seen in this small picture of Haman versus Mordecai. This enemy of the Jewish people sought to destroy them. But as we saw in all of this, God was not distant. Though his name was not mentioned in this book, though at times it seems like the Israelites were unfaithful, one night the king couldn't sleep. And so he decided to have the memorable deeds read to him. Well, eventually we know what happened. Esther tells the king of Mordecai's plan, or of Haman's plan. Uh, Haman is sentenced to die. Mordecai is exalted. And eventually, the Jewish people are preserved. We saw last week that their sorrow was turned to gladness, that their mourning became a holiday, and that even that poor that was used, those lots that were cast to destroy the Jews, became the name of their holiday. But now we come to Esther chapter 10. And we look at verse number one, and it says, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Now, if you remember in chapter two of verse 18, these taxes were lifted for a time in order to celebrate the marriage of the king and Esther. But now in chapter 10, we see that they've come back. And the question that many people ask is, why is this seemingly unimportant bit of information given to us? This section, it seems like the whole point of this section is to talk about the greatness of Mordecai. And it says that if we want all of the little details, we can go look in the chronicles of the Medes and the Persians. But yet, this information is given to us. Why is that? Well, many have said that this shows us that yes, the deliverance of God's people in Persia was great. It was a wonderful deliverance, but let's not think that this was God's ultimate deliverance. They are not free of all burdens. There is still sin in the world. There is still oppression upon them. Yes, while this deliverance was great, it is only pointing towards a greater deliverance. God's ultimate deliverance is not found in Persia. God's ultimate deliverance is not found in Mordecai, but it's found in Christ. We see here, there are two ways that we see the method of God's deliverance, or there are two ways that we see deliverance. It's both in the method and also in the man. The method of God's deliverance and also the man of God's deliverance. So first, would you look with me at the method of God's deliverance? How does this method of deliverance seen in Esther point us to the deliverance that we see in Christ. Well, we see it in Esther's two great themes. Those themes are providence and reversal. So let's talk about providence first. If we can talk about providence just one more time. I want to talk about it just once more. But first, what does providence not mean? Well, first, providence doesn't mean that as things happen in history, God moves with the punches, that God reacts to new circumstances 
and then makes provision for them. Uh, If we think of the providence that we make in our own lives, that's what it looks like, right? If we're deciding to have children, we think, okay, what what sort of house should we live in? What area should we live in? We think about our future, and we make provision. But that's not how God makes providence for us. In fact, as we look in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 11, we see the picture of God's providence. It says there, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Right? Not preparing for the end from the beginning, but instead declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. The beginning, the end, and everything in between is by the decree of God. You see, when we think about God's providence, and we think about God's decree, it doesn't just take place within history as if history and God's decree were separate. But rather, history itself is a part of God's decree. God declares the ends from the beginning. Everything, everything in between, all of history, is creation. All of history and time itself comes from God's decree. Providence means that from the beginning to the end, God accomplishes his purpose, both for the good of his people and for the display of his glory. When we look at Esther, it's not as though Haman brought about this plan and then God reacted to it, but rather that wicked decree of Haman was a part of God's good decree. You see, while Haman, being sinful and wicked and full of hatred, meant this thing for the destruction of the Jews, God, being holy and righteous, And good meant it in order to bring about his glory, in order to give his people celebration. Both things, or what happened, both from Haman's decree and God's decree, same act, but from God, good, righteousness, to bring himself glory and to bring rejoicing to his people. What do the scriptures teach about our deliverance in Christ? You see, this method of deliverance found in Esther points us to the method of deliverance found in Christ. So what do the scriptures teach us about our deliverance in Christ? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 say, For he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Then again in Ephesians chapter 3, 9 through 11, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places This was according to the eternal purpose that is realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Notice that it's decreed by God in eternity. 
and then made manifest to us in our own history. Although it seems like to us it's something new, to God, this has been decreed in eternity, outside of time. Our redemption is by this providential hand. In fact, it's really amazing. The very first time we ever hear of God's providence in the Bible is when we see Abraham being commanded to offer up his son Isaac. If you remember the story, God tells Abraham to prove his faith, make his faith visible by offering up his son as a sacrifice, his miracle child as a sacrifice. And if you remember, while Abraham and Isaac were going up that mountain, Isaac asks, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And then Abraham, knowing the command of God to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, tells his son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham says, God will provide for himself a lamb. You see, this is the first time that the Bible at least uses this word and talks about God providing, God being the one who makes provision. And notice what it's talking about. It's not talking about a new job that he needs, a good thing. He's not talking about money. He's not talking about health. He's not talking about luxuries. But instead, the very first time that providence is ever mentioned in the Bible, it's about redemption. It is providence about a ram that would die in place of Isaac. And of course, we know that this first act of providence is pointing to a greater act of providence, when God would provide a lamb on another mountain named Jesus, who would die in the place of us. This method of deliverance that we find in Esther is providential. And also we see that it brings about great reversal. If you remember from last week, we heard about that poor, right? That dice or lot that was cast in order to condemn the Jews. But then we also found out that the name of their celebration was Purim. Notice that there was a reversal in the way that they looked at those lots, at that poor. At first, it meant condemnation upon them. But then, because of what God did, its meaning was reversed. It was then celebration. It's really interesting. If you were to come with me back to my parents' home in a place called Enterprise, Alabama, uh, I could show you this really weird monument in the middle of the town. Some of you might have heard of this monument. I was told it was very famous, but I had never heard of it until we moved to Enterprise, Alabama. And if you go there in the middle of the town, there's this weird statue of a woman. She looks like one of those marble statues of a Greek goddess or something. And she's holding something up. And as you get closer, you find out that she's holding a bug. And it's a boll weevil. I wonder if any of you have heard this story. But... What happened was before this town, Enterprise, Alabama, their economy was based on cotton. And this is how they made a living for themselves, was through cotton. But eventually, this bug came through called the boll weevil, and it destroyed all of their cotton. 
It destroyed their livelihood. And in order to make up for this destruction, they started to grow peanuts. Well, what happened was the growth of peanuts brought so much prosperity to this town that now if you come back home with me every fall, we can go to the peanut festival. And we can go see this monument of the pole of the bull weevil because before it was seen as an image of destruction. It eventually became this image of celebration. And of course, we can almost think, or not almost, but we can just think of our Christian faith. And we can look behind me and see this cross. And we can think, you know, I bet in the first century, the Christians looked really weird as they celebrated what to the other people was an image of condemnation, a death sentence, something that was made to humiliate people, to show their condemnation, to bring them to death. But to the Christians, its meaning was reversed. Just like that poor for these Jews, its meaning was reversed. You see, in God's deliverance, he brings about great reversal. I bet even in your own life, you can think of things that maybe at the time you were going through them, they were horrible. They were things that brought great anxiety, things that brought great depression, and you probably thought to yourself, what good can ever come out of this situation? But in patience, and as God worked in your life, you look back at that memory, and you don't see anxiety, depression, or sorrow. Instead, there's been reversal. Now you look back, and you see God's hand. You see his mercy and his grace. And what at one point caused sorrow now brings rejoicing. You see, the book of Esther is filled with this. From beginning to end, you see amazing reversals. In chapter 3, there's this anti-Jewish law made. But then later in chapter 8, there's a pro-Jewish law made. In chapter 3, there's the elevation of Haman. But later in chapter 8, there's the elevation of Mordecai over Haman. In chapter 1, we saw these two banquets of the Persians. But then later, in chapter 9, we saw two banquets for the Jews. Chapter 1, as we saw, it described the greatness of King Ahasuerus. Here in chapter 10, we see the greatness of Mordecai. This sort of thing happened throughout the entire book. There were reversals of victory and defeat. If you remember at the beginning of chapter 9, there was this really amazing phrase that sort of captured this whole idea of reversal. It said, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it says the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. There were reversals of exaltation and humiliation. Remember, Haman had hoped that Mordecai would be humiliated. But as we saw, the reverse occurred. Instead, Mordecai was exalted and Haman was humiliated. We saw reversals of condemnation and salvation. The Jews, they expected to be annihilated. But what happened? As we saw the reverse occurred. Instead, they were saved 
Death was on their calendar. But now, celebration and rejoicing has been put on their calendar. Now, when we hear of these different types of reversals, we think of our own story and our own deliverance that we have in Christ. Does Christ bring a reversal of victory and defeat? Absolutely. The serpent defeats us in a tree, but in Christ, the reverse occurs. He gives us victory in a tree. Were there reversals of humiliation and exaltation? Absolutely. By sin, humanity fell. That image of God was marred by sin. Even this creation in all of its glory has been marred by our sin. But in Christ, the reverse has occurred. That image of God is being renewed. We're looking to a future resurrection of our bodies and also this creation. What about reversals of condemnation and salvation? Well, as we know, there is a condemnation on all humanity. You see, not only did that fall of man bring humiliation, but it also brought condemnation. We heard a few weeks, about, a weeks ago about the severity of God's justice on sin and the severity of God's wrath on sinners. You see, every child that is welcomed into this world, as beautiful as that is, that child is welcomed into a world of condemnation, a world of sin and wickedness that's in rebellion against God. Now, all of that sounds so dark, but the good news is that that child is also welcomed to a world in which a deliverer came to bring salvation. You see, that same world of condemnation, Christ entered into that world to bring the reverse. Christ came to bring salvation. As God's word tells us, justice and judgment are the habitation of God's throne. And yet at the same time, mercy and truth go before his face. How does this work? How do you have justice and mercy held together? I mean, is it mercy by definition, setting aside justice and not giving what people deserve? Well, we know that in Christ, the justice and the righteousness of God is displayed because while Christ takes our justice, God is then justified to call sinners justified. In Christ, the wicked are called holy. This amazing reversal is only found in Christ. Now, as we talk about Christ, we are talking about the man of our deliverance. You see, as Esther talks about the method of our deliverance, and as we see this method of deliverance in our own deliverance brought by Christ, we also see a type of our man of our deliverance. Look back with me at Esther chapter 10 and verse number 3. It says there, For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. Why? For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Like Mordecai, 
Our Savior, Christ, came first as a servant, but now he is exalted. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, they speak of the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Look at the exaltation of Christ. Far above all rule and authority, in power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, Christ came first as a servant. He came humble, obedient to the Father, going to the cross to take our sin and our punishment upon himself. This he did voluntarily with the Father in order to satisfy the wrath and justice of God. And when he gave his life for us, we know that he was resurrected three days later. And as Romans chapter 6 verse 9 says, death no longer has dominion over him. Why does death no longer have dominion over Christ? It is because he has been exalted. He has gone through death into new life. And as we look at Christ, as we see him exalted, we know that he will bring us through death into that new life where he has gone first. That is the reversal that we see in Christ. That is the great providential salvation that we see in Christ. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, the question is asked, how is Christ exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God? It gives us an answer that reminds us very much of what we see in Esther chapter 10. Notice what it says. Christ is exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God in that, as God-man, he is advanced to the highest favor with God the Father, with all fullness of joy, glory, and power over all things in heaven and earth, and doth gather and defend his church and subdue their enemies, furnishes his, minister in, or furnishes his ministers and people with gifts and grace and makes intercession for them. Notice the exaltation, and then in that exalted state, blessing his people. We saw that when Mordecai was exalted, he sought the welfare of his people. We saw that he spoke peace to his people. And when we see Christ exalted above all authority, what does Christ do for us? He seeks the welfare of his people. He blesses his church with gifts and grace and teachers. What else does he do? He speaks peace to them. Remember that there's something in the section of Esther chapter 10 that shows something very different from Jesus and Mordecai. You see, the peace that Mordecai brought was not perfect peace. Yes, it was peace. Yes, it was deliverance. But it was only a shadow, only a type of the peace and deliverance that's brought to us by Christ. 
You see, Mordecai sought the welfare of his people, but Jesus secured the welfare of his people. Mordecai spoke peace to his people, but Jesus established peace for his people. If you remember even a few moments ago, when we read from the assurance of God's grace, we saw there in Isaiah 53, verse number five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The Bible tells us as well, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, what does it mean that Jesus brought peace to us? What does it mean that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ? Well, what it means is that before Christ spoke peace to us, before Christ brought us peace with God, we were the enemies of God. We wanted nothing to do with God. The sin that had so affected us made it to where we hated God and we hated the things of God. But by God's grace, the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts. And through faith, the gift of God, we now have peace with God. God makes peace with us through Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus Christ who in a far better way than Mordecai now speaks peace to his people. But we see, of course, on the other side of this, that without Christ speaking peace to you, there is nobody speaking peace. You see, it shows that if we don't have Christ who establishes peace between us with God, all we have is enmity between us and God, which is why I, like the apostles, urge you to be reconciled to God, to be together with your Creator, going to God through Jesus Christ, that you may have peace with him. That is the message of the gospel, that though we are in condemnation, through Christ we have peace. Through Christ there is great reversal for those who are in him. The Jewish people, they had cause for great rejoicing for what Mordecai did, but we have cause for greater rejoicing, as we saw last week for what Christ has done for us. The man Mordecai and the God-man Jesus are very different. The enemies that Mordecai was exalted over are very different from the enemies that Christ is exalted over. Unlike Mordecai, Jesus was God become flesh, true God and true man. Rather than Persians with swords, the enemies that Christ has given us victory over are sin and death. And I hope, as you think of the story of Esther, I hope as you read over this story, that you don't stop at, wow, God really delivered his people in Persia. Instead, I hope you come to the book of Esther and you say, how does this book point me towards Jesus? And as you see Christ, the deliverer, the man of our salvation, say, I need this deliverer. I need this man and my salvation. I need this Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
Would you join me in prayer? Father, we want to thank you, God, for sending this deliverer, for sending to us Christ, our Savior. Lord, and for bringing about such great reversal. I pray that you would remind us of the seriousness of our sin. Lord, and how greatly we need this reversal. Lord, and how great your mercy is. Father, as we prepare to come to your table in a few moments, God, let us remember that this is something worth celebrating. That the death of Christ, it gives us life. Father, we thank you. Lord, and we thank you for all of this. In your son's name, Jesus, amen.